for today, Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. At 98, he still supports evil. Mm, what a shock. Thought he would change, but he still supports evil. His name is Yaroslav Hunka. And uh, I was going to say he's in the gallery, but I think you beat me to that. <laughs> but I'm very proud to say that he is from North Bay and from my riding of Nipissing to Miskaming. <laughs> he's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. Thank you. Nazi as a soldier from World War II given standing ovation by World Economic Forum infiltrated Canadian Parliament. A Second World War Nazi war criminal has received a standing ovation from Canadian parliamentarians during the visit of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invited Yaroslav Hunka, 98, to the Canadian Parliament where he received the standing ovation for fighting against the Russians during the Second World War. Speaker of the House Anthony Roda Praise Yostolov Hunka, 98, for his service in the 1st Division of the Ukrainian National Army, which served Adolf Hitler's 14th Waffen-SS Division, Galicia, and was later condemned during the Nuremberg trials. Hunka later immigrated to Canada like many other, other members of his division. So that explains why they're getting so much support. We have this, we have with us, in the chamber today, a Ukrainian-Canadian veteran from the Second World War who fought for Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, said Rota. All House parties, Senate groups, and foreign dignitaries gave Hunka a standing ovation for his efforts against the Russians then and now. He's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service, concluded Rota. However, as the Rebel News report, Canadian's leading military affairs reporter, David Pogisi, wrote a 2020 article that says no such first division existed during World War II. Members of the division serve Adolf Hitler's 14th Waffen SS Division Galicia, a designated criminal organization, according to the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal, reported military journal Esprit de Corps. As many as 2,000 Waffen SS soldiers of Ukrainian heritage, included Hunka, supposedly 
change their identities and masquerade as refugees before capture to seek refuge in Canada in the 1950s. As many as 30,000 Ukrainian refugees fled Europe to, for Canada at the time. Before members of the unit surrendered to the Allied forces, they hid their SS connection in the final days of the war by re renaming themselves the 1st Division Ukrainian National Army. Puglisi said that the Ukrainians had voluntarily served the Nazi war machine and eagerly signed up to join the Waffen SS. Royal Canadian Air Force RCAF member Lieutenant Bolden Pachuk, a founding member of the Ukrainian Servicemen's Association, USCA, pushed a positive narrative portraying the former Galician as an anti Soviet German army unit. However, Galician division committed themselves to German victory the new European order and the Adolf Hitler personally. Explained per Anders Rudling, a historian of Eastern European history and associate professor at the Department of History at Lund University, Sweden, while Canadian immigration officials did not sufficiently probe the 2000 SS refugees, their British counterparts know exactly their oranges and were more than happy to offload them to Canada. The division was an SS division, and technically all of its officers and senior NCOs are liable for trials as war criminals, noted a report from Britain's under-secret Secretary of State. The SS Waffen fought the Polish Home Army in World War II, crushed the Slavic National Uprising, and hunted down anti-Nazi partisans in Slovenia. What little we know of their war record is bad, wrote Benel Hughes who handed the cursory background checks for Britain Home Office. We're still hoping to get rid of the less desirable Ukrainian POWs either to Germany or Canada, he said in another 1948 note. Hughes also wrote to a colleague that Puntrick knew he was dealing with unsavory individuals, but that did not sway him in making Canada their home. Some Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian Canadians also knew their origins and strongly opposed their settling in Canada. It is clear that Pontruk and his association either forget the facts that no Canadian could forget or feel that Canadians have very have already forgotten their sons who have fallen on the battlefields in Europe, said the Association of United Ukrainians in Canada. Ukrainian division Galicia was part and parcel of the Hitler army. Our Canadian boys fought against them on the battlefields of Italy. Many Canadian sons remained over there, shot by the very ones that Mr. Pontruk would like your department to bring to Canada, they said. <sighs> this is sad, but, you know, America is now showing their true colors. That's who they are. All right. So next up is a pretty wild story happening in Mexico. Let's get into it. Listo al querer asaltar a los pacientes en la plaza principal utilizando el muñeco diabólico Chucky. Se acercaba a la gente y de la. Acudiendo la unidad ADSP 228 que realizó la detención del sujeto y del muñeco. 
disco diabólico al cual también se le colocaron las esposas. Como Carlos N. ingresó a las celdas por la falta administrativa. Fue estosado y metido a las celdas más lejanas. Un sujeto se quiso pasar de listo al querer asaltar a los pacientes en la plaza principal utilizando el muñeco diabólico Chucky. Se acercaba a la gente y de la rica acudiendo a la unidad de SP228. Que realizó la detención del sujeto y del muñeco diabólico al cual también se le colocaron las esposas como Carlos N ingresó a la celda ok Mexican demon doll arrested, media says. A would-be thief using the infamous Chucky to, de to terrorize locals was reported. A man who had been using a knife wielding Chucky doll to terrorize and rob locals in northern Mexico was arrested, local media report. The horror movie doll was also handcuffed and taken into custody. The man identified only as Carlson was accused by authorities of using the doll, which has been popularized by Child's Play horror movies uh, series of disturbing public order endangering the public and demanding money from then in Moncolovia in the northern state of Kaludia earlier this month. He put the doll in their faces and was scaring people. John Wall Acuna, a former director of the Moncolovia police, told Führer Informative Azteca. It is an offense and for this reason he was arrested. It was also reported that Carlosen was under the influence of illicit substance at the time of the incident. He was charged under <clears throat> which occurred in the city's main public square. Both Carlson as well as the offending doll was taken into police custody at the precinct where both were handcuffed and had their mugshots taken. The Chucky doll, which still had a large knife protruding from its overalls, was propped up against the wall and held up by its hair while a mugshot was taken. However, the police officer who handcuffed the doll reportedly at the request of reporters was later admonished for the move. Some journalists were jokingly telling him to pose with the doll to put the handcuffs on it. Alcola said he must take his job and the regulations seriously, not play those games. The demon doll at the center of the police inquiries first debuted on the silver screen in 1988's Child's Play, a movie which tells the tale of a mother who gives a doll to her son but is unaware that the doll is possessed by the spirit of a serial murderer. The original film spawned several sequels. Child's Play 3 is believed to have been cited in two separate murder inquiries in the UK in December of 1992 and February of 1993 as have been the inspiration behind the crimes. Viewing of the movie was later restricted in the UK with some video rental chains refusing to carry copies of the film in their stores. Okay. Oh boy, this is hilarious. All right. All right.
A bipartisan bill in Congress calls for the ban on the use of artificial intelligence for launching warheads. Uh, that's I <laughs> uh, just wanted to read that title. Oh, boy. It's not going to happen. All right, let's get into the story right here about uh, happening on uh, in Europe right now. The European Union, what they're dealing with right now, which is pretty much, uh, it's kind of funny in a way, but it's not. Prior to the European Union, how Brussels turns its own agents, customs agents, into petty thieves. The bloc's bureaucracy, unable to sever economic ties with Russia, decided to annoy Moscow in a different way by stealing from the country's ordinary citizens. Powerfully bureaucratic machines work perfectly until they don't. Brussels is no exception. The European Union carefully regulates the shape and size of cucumbers, but for some reason still can't decide how its own sanctions against Russia are supposed to work. Despite the bloc's public shows of unity against Moscow and some European countries still refuse to let their people freeze in the winter and won't stop buying Russian gas through long-established supply channels. There's still no final solution to this issue. However, the European Commission recently issued a document that literally turned custom officers into pirates who are allowed to rob Russians. As it turned out, the decisive response to Russian aggression came down to preventing Russian citizens from taking their laptops and toilet paper on a trip to the European Union. Seriously? This modern-day letter of Marquis didn't remain in force for long. The European Union officials quickly backed down, demonstrating how they got tangled up in their own rules. Clarification of a clarification. September 8th, the European Commission released a, um, <clears throat> a FAQ document on Annex 21, Article 3I of Sanctions Regulation Number 833-2014, published in 2014. The original act established a ban on import into the block of goods and generate significant revenues for Russia. In practice, this document simply emphasized the need to control the transit of goods across the Russia-EU border. Up to 2022, the restrictions were rather mild. If a Russian tourist didn't carry gold bars or rubens originals in their luggage, they were guaranteed pass through the European customs without any problem. Trade between Russia and Europe did not stop either. Moscow was one of Brussels' largest trading partners. The new exploratory document, however, caused a stir among Russian tourists at EU customs. The European Commission pointed out that even private property not intended for sale is considered to be prohibited in Important, prohibited import. Technically, custom officers were ordered to seize everything that cannot be imported, 
into the block due to sanctioned cars, leather, and fur products, semi-precious and precious stones, toilet paper, shampoos, toothpaste, trailers, and semi-trailers for cargo transportation and yachts, cameras, and much more. Having carefully studied the documents, lawyers came to a disappointing conclusion. Confiscation cases may be disputed on an individual basis, but there is no guarantee that any goods on the list may be safely bought into the EU. BGP litigation partner Sergei Gladden advised Russians not to carry anything that could be confiscated. For example, entering Germany, the country's citizens should be leave behind cars with Russian license plates, jewelry, toiletries, tech items. Meanwhile, they should put on tracksuit along with netwear. So sportswear was generally excluded from the list or banned items and hope for the best. What remains of the luggage should be packed into plastic bags because suitcases can also be seized according to the new rules. The threat of literally being stripped naked at the border became particularly relevant after several Russian cars were confiscated in Germany. Even before the FAQ was published, the, pub, the police stopped one driver right on the highway, seized his car, and left him in the middle of the road. For the authorities, does it does not matter whether a person lives in Germany, has a visa, is passing through the country on his way home, or plans to stay for a long time. The mere fact that his car is registered in Russia is a reason enough to seize it. In some cases, the, dis the decisions can be disputed in court, but not everyone is ready to enter into an expensive and drawn out struggle with the German legal system. And this particularly, particularly concerns people who were just passing through. Obviously, if every Russian who crossed the European Union border were to have all their belongings from them banned, it's less confiscated, it would turn into a massive robbery. Over the past 10 years, Russia has been among the leading countries when it comes to Snigadin visa applications in 2019, over 4.1 million applications were submitted and 82% of the visas received were multi-entry visas. The statistics was one of the highest in the world while the rejection rate for Russians was among the lowest at only 1.5%. Despite the recent difficulties in obtaining visas and all the sanctions and threats, the huge tourist flow has not stopped. In fact, the demand for all vacations in Italy and France has increased by 30% among Russians this year. And that not counting people who visit, who visit relatives in Europe, travel on business or come for a medical treatment. The new rules have confused not only lawyers, but also politicians, including those inside the bloc. In a later addressed to the president of the European Commission, Earl Sud von Deliren, German MEP Sergei Legotsky, called the new rules not just useless, but harmless, harmful. As a result, the shampoos and jackets previously considered a threat to the European security won't, seize, won't be seized by Russians, or most likely won't be. Four days after the publication of the strange FAQ document, the European Commission hurried to publish yet another explanation. This time, officials said the goods which do not raise significant concern of circumvention sanctions, for example, personal hygiene items or clothing worn by visitors or contained in their luggage should be evaluated by custom officers in an appropriate, proportionate and reasonable manner. Attention should only be paid to cars with Russian registration or license plate. Moreover, European Commission refused to take responsibility for the matter, stressing the measures are advisory in nature and European Union members can regulate their custom policies independently. This means personal items or vehicles may or may not be seized at the border. All decisions will be made on an individual basis. 
mostly Russians who carry luggage across the EU will need to rely on good luck and hope the custom officers are in a good mood, since a lot will depend on the chance. But Russians can definitely count on the unpleasant turn of events when entering the Baltic states. The authorities of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania unanimously stated that they would not allow cars with Russian license plates to cross the border. Estonian Foreign Minister Markus Tashanka said, we cannot allow citizens of an aggressive state to enjoy the benefits offered by freedom and democracy while Russia continues its genocide in Ukraine. Genocide in Ukraine. Who started this? It was Ukraine. Don't join NATO. NATO's corrupt. Ukraine is corrupt, uh, having, you know, neo-Nazis in their military, child trafficking. And let's not forget the issue with uh, Prince Andrew and his child molestation charges. <clears throat> the child molestation charges that Prince Andrew is facing when he was in, in a uh, restaurant, a business in Kiev, and how those kids were caught naked and crying, and they were and they were whisked away. Don't believe me? Look up that story. Ukraine is the last to talk about genocide and oppression. Let's not forget cruelty to children. Incidentally, Tashanka's colleague, Estonian Prime Minister Kejaz Kalas, is facing career trouble precisely because of the business with the aforementioned aggressor state. As it turns out, her husband's company continues to conduct business in Russia despite the sanctions. Moreover, according to some reports, the firm indirectly supplies the Russian police. Many outraged Estonians have called on Kalaz to resign, but she has refused to do so, saying that she did not know anything about her husband's businesses. Meanwhile, it is known that Kalaz owns a share in the company, has visited its factory, even provided a loan for it. However, she claims that the whole story is simply misunderstanding, that there's no reason for her to step down. Apparently, there's a big difference between profitable business in the aggressor state and tourism from the aggressor state, which holds no personal profit for politicians. The restrictions on import of personal belongings will surely ruin ruin some trips to the EU to the EU, but most likely will not have an impact and will be quickly forgotten. What this story reminds us is that many of the bloc's members are not ready to give up business relations with Russia. However, they are ready to make life for Russians more difficult by any means, merely to demonstrate the symbolic discontent with the aggressor, even if the decisive measure comes down to stealing cars and toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, man. They say they hate Russia, but Russia has them on a leash. That's what they have. Russia has them on a leash, baby. Oh man, um, sorry about that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know you were there, man. Sorry about that. Underrated darkness. Hey, what's up? Good morning, man. Good morning. <clears throat> yeah, they try to play games, you know. Oh, we hate Russia, but we'll take the take take their oil under everyone's nose. Wild stuff, man. Wild stuff. All right, so let's get into this story about. Uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson. People think this is a good idea, but it's really not. It really isn't because there's issues to fix first before doing this. And I'll tell you why.
tour to help promote food equity on Chicago's south and west sides. It's an idea Mayor Brandon Johnson's office is currently exploring. And that's despite a half a billion dollar city budget shortfall. CBS 2's Mugo Odigwe is live outside City Hall. And Mugo, people shouldn't expect that grocery store's doors to open anytime soon. Exactly. And that that's because this is really just an idea right now, one that's already being done in some small cities, but there's currently no timeline on when it could happen here in Chicago. What is clear, though, is that there is certainly a need out there. Many neighborhoods on the south and west sides just don't have quality grocery stores. In fact, several buildings are still boarded up after private chains moved out. One example is this former Aldi at 76 in Ashland in Auburn Gresham. It closed more than a year ago, which brings us to Mayor Brandon Johnson's proposal. Under that plan, the city would use economic development grants and team up with an organization to open a city-owned grocery store in one of Chicago's food deserts. We are not spending any taxpayer dollars, right? Um, what we're also going to be able to access is the funding that exists. My thing is this, okay, you want to bring in a food grocery store, but you can't control the crime. What's the sense of having a business in Chicago if store owners have to fear for their lives and fear for the fact that they can't make a profit because people are going to come in and steal they're going to come in and take things without paying. That's the issue I have here with blacks in these cities. Okay. You want to have food and all these benefits and stuff, but you don't want to clean up the crime that's going to make these businesses run away. That's the issue here. I have. Chicago proposing opening city-run grocery store. Okay. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson announced a plan last week to explore opening a city-run grocery store to help underserved, underserved new neighborhoods that have become food deserts. For context, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, food deserts are areas where people have limited access to a variety of healthy and affordable food. The city of Chicago will partner with the Economic Security Project, a nonprofit advocacy group, to similarly explore public option for grocery stores, which would be similar to the public library or the post office. The move comes after several grocery stores, including Whole Foods and Walmart, closed on the city's south and west sides, widening our already existing retail gap. According to the mayor's office, at least six grocery stores have closed in those areas over the last two years. Critics are calling the idea socialist, saying a better way to address the food insecurity is to handle the crime and theft in stores so they don't have to close. But they don't want to hear that. It's important to note that as now that is this is just a feasible study, not a set in stone plan. Chicago would be the first major USC to open a city run grocery store, but the idea has been carried out on a smaller scale in smaller areas before. For example, Baldwin, Florida, which is home to 1,330 people as of 2023, opened a market run by local government back in 2019 after its only grocery store shut down. All of the store employees, from cashiers to people stocking the shelves, are on the municipal payroll, and all profits go back into the town. 
There are only a few in Kansas, St. Paul Supermarket, St. Paul, Kansas, Caney Market, Caney, Kansas, and Erie Market, Erie, Kansas. Government-owned grocery stores are different than nonprofit grocery stores, which are different from food pantries. Nonprofit grocery stores are smaller than major chains, meaning an inventory has to be tailored to the community and sold at a more affordable prices. There are typically three ways they operate. Model one, baseline membership dues like Costco's or Sam's Club. Model two, combination of donations from food banks, discounts from distributors, and the power company and leveraging SNAP benefits to offer free or discounted items to SNAP recipients. Model three, combination of volunteers, donations, grants, and connection to the community. Majority of the nonprofit grocery stores use the third model. So my thing is, what about the crime? Brandon Johnson is just, he just wants to bring Chicago into the ground, just like Lori Lightfoot. All right. That's what's going to happen. Because if the city owns these grocery stores, guess what? If they want to push a uh, some uh, special toxin, you want the groceries, got to get that uh, special toxin. That's what's happening, man. People don't want to look at that. People don't want to look at that. They don't want to see that, that socialism leads to communism. People have a hard time dealing with that. When you mention that, especially to black people, they get mad at you. See, they don't see any of that. They need to look into Manning Johnson and what he said about socialism. He was a former Democrat. No, I'm not Republican. And he talked about socialism, how it leads to communism. All right. All this was in the making, man. With Martin Luther King, how he was a boule sellout and he was a communist and how the civil rights movement was really a communist movement. And then you have blacks wanting free stuff. The thing, it's designed to make blacks look like par pariahs and the bottom feeders of society. That's what communism is meant to do, especially for blacks. Manning Johnson left because the goal of the socialists was to make blacks their slaves. OK, there's a lot about socialism when it comes to the black community. That is not that is not known to many, not known to the general public, and it has to be known in order to look and fight white supremacy. Brandon Johnson fights for white supremacy, not against it. He's there to do he's a paid slave like many of these politicians are to bring down society, especially the black community. Let's go into this story right here. Sad, sad story. Good evening at 11 o'clock. I'm Sandra Bookman. Joe has the night off. We're going to begin tonight with that new information. After a little boy dies and three other children are found unconscious at a daycare in the Bronx, people are in custody tonight. Charges are pending. Eyewitness News reporter Anthony Carlo live outside the 52nd precincts in the Norwood section of the Bronx. He's got the very latest. Anthony. 
Well, Sandra, sources say the woman who was running Divino Nino Daycare and a man have been in police custody here at the 52nd Precinct, and they are being questioned by detectives. Of course, this in tandem with the Bronx District Attorney's Office, they will determine the culpability of both of these individuals and really uh, what has been a horrific, horrific ordeal. But it doesn't seem to be a matter of if, but when. I'm told criminal charges will come down. Tonight, a heartbroken father is trying to make sense of the loss of his one-year-old son. I love him. I miss him. I want him back. But there's nothing that will give me back my son. Nicholas Dominici died after authorities say he and three other small children were exposed to opioids at a Bronx daycare Friday afternoon. A source close to the investigation says fentanyl was found along with drug-making equipment, specifically a kilo press. Everybody involved with the workers, the staff, grilled those who knew about it. Send them to prison to do, uh, do send it, put them under the jail. This is an item that is commonly used by drug dealers when patch, packaging large quantities of drugs. Tonight, investigators are trying to determine how the children, one of them as young as eight months old, came in contact with a potent substance inside a home based daycare in this Morris Avenue building. What this father thought was a safe space for his son. It's the first time we lose a family member. We don't have a plan. We don't know where to go or what to do. At the end of the day, we are alone in this process. The children didn't wake up from nap time. First responders rushed to the building for cardiac arrests. Sources say Narcan was used to revive at least one of them. Doctors now testing blood and urine samples from the three surviving kids to figure out exactly what kind of narcotics they were exposed to. Meanwhile, parents want answers from the daycare. I'm expecting you to watch my kid at all times because at that point, at that at that moment, these are your kids. They they my kids, but they your kids because they under your watch. And we are told that an autopsy for that one-year-old boy, Nicholas Dominici, has come back inconclusive, but that means that toxicology reports will be carried out, and we're told they will be expedited. But certainly, you feel for his father tonight. And again, People need to uh, pony up that big money. If you can't, if you don't have the dynamic of uh, having the mother stay home, okay, you're going to have to do some homework and find a reputable daycare, pony up the money, make the sacrifices to put them in a reputable daycare. You can't be putting them in these homogeneous uh, daycares, basically. What I mean to say by that is the fact of, all right, like in Spanish communities like Spanish Harlem and the Bronx and stuff, they would go to Spanish daycares and stuff like that. You have to go to reputable daycares, all right? You may not know to speak English very well, but learn the language. If you're black, you pony up the money and put them in a, in a, in a better quality daycare. OK, can't be putting them in, you know, in these 
you know, hole in the wall daycares in the hood. Okay. Put them in daycares that are reputable and have a good reputation. Okay. That is basically uh, what to do. Single motherhood is not the way to go because this could be you. Okay. You're judging single mothers. Look, I'm telling the truth, calling it a spade. When you're a single parent, okay, some t this sometimes could happen to you. <clears throat> okay? Because you don't have the dynamic of um, man and woman uh, together under marriage. Uh, and this could happen which is unfortunate or worse. You don't have grandparents like your mother or your father to watch kids while you go to work. They may not, and they themselves may be still working. So this is why I said, this is why you have people, some saying that single parenthood is not good. Single motherhood is not good. Single fatherhood is not good. Okay. Daycare owner who, Daycare owner where Todd died after fentanyl exposure duped ex-husband to gain entry to the U.S. <laughs> oh, boy. The owner of the Bronx daycare where Todd died after inhaling fentanyl is a very bad person who duped her ex-husband into a sham marriage so that she could gain entry to the U.S., then put him through hell, the family told the Post. Gary Mendes de Vajura was able to move to the Big Apple from her native Dominican Republic nine years ago, thanks to her green card marriage to Juan Ventra, a Bronx man she hooked up with through a mutual friend, her sister said. She gave a very false impression to my brother that she wanted to be married, so they brought her over from the DR for marriage. But when she got here, she wanted to smoke hookah and drink a lot. And my brother, he's not like that and said the sister from the family's Fort George apartment on Friday. She was interested in the marriage for him. She just wanted to, she wasn't interested in the marriage for him. She just wanted to come to America. She didn't seem like she was interested in my brother at all. When she got to America, they ended up getting a divorce because of the terribleness of it all, said the sister. And other family was asked not to be identified. He wanted to be out and she just wanted to go to the clubs and get be promiscuous. She continued, Mendez, 36, only visited the family's home twice. She didn't care about, she didn't care to get to know her husband's family. The sister lamented. And that was enough for the adventurous father to determine that she's very, very bad person, disapproved of her for his son. My son, who has an education, isn't into any of that, he added. After the couple thankfully divorced following a terrible couple of years, the Ventura family completely cut ties with Mendez and hadn't thought about her again until she, they learned about the September 15th horror at the Divino Nino daycare. One day, one-year-old Nicholas Felines Dominci died and three other children were hospitalized after inhaling dangerous amounts of fentanyl while under Mendez care at the Maurice Avenue apartment, which authorities said was also a drug front. These drug dealers are so stupid. So stupid. Mendez and Calista Avizino Brinto, a 41-year-old man who was renting the downstairs of the apartment, were hit with murder, assault, and child endangerment charges 
following the incident. This is what I'm talking about, these hole-in-the-wall daycares. Mendez is being held in Brooklyn and awaiting federal charges. Authorities have since uncovered plethora of drugs and drug paraphernalia at the scene, including a kilo of fentanyl sitting on mats, the children slept on kilo presses or devices usually used to combine the drug with cocaine and heroin and other powdery substances that are being tested. Ventura has been in counseling because of the, all the damage Mendez did to him and has refused to discuss his ex-wife's alleged crimes with anyone, his sister said. Ventura, who is now married and has a son and remains living in the Bronx, according to his sister, could not be reached. Mendez really just put my brother through hell for the years that they were married, and he is really going through it still, his sister said. We find it offensive that the name of the actual place is Divino Nino because the baby, that's baby Jesus. And we believe, we really believe very much in baby Jesus. And for a child to die there, for me, that's really triggering, Ventura's sister said. But I'm saying, man, you can't be... Uh, this is the thing, man. You can't be marrying people that you really don't know. And, you know, they come from a foreign country and they I have a lot to say about this. Can't be marrying people from a foreign country that really don't have nothing, of you know, for themselves and think it's going to turn out well. OK. It's really not. Damn. This is a sad situation, man. A really sad situation for everyone involved. Hopefully she'll get life in prison. Hopefully that is uh, what will be the sentence. Right, third of children put on puberty blockers saw mental health reliably deteriorate. U.S. researchers find a third of children placed on puberty blockers by Britain's controversial Tavistock Child Gender Clinic suffered mental problems after taking the hormone altering drugs, according to the fresh analysis. A new look at the 2011 study conducted by the University of College London Hospitals and the Tavistock Century Gender Identity Development Service. UK's only child gender transformation clinic that is set to shut down over safeguarding failures has found that mental health of the 34% of the children replaced on puberty blockers, placed on puberty blockers, drugs reliably deteriorated while 37% saw no difference and 29% reliably improved following the administration of the drugs. The new findings fly in the face of the 2011 analysis of 44 children aged between 12 and 15 years old, which
much. Okay, so that's it for now. We had a little uh, malfunction, but um, that's it. I'll be wrapping it up. So if you like the commentary, like, share, comment, subscribe, uh, send a comment, put a comment in the description box, and let's have a conversation. All right. I'm on uh, Spotify, Hard Talk Radio Live in 4K. I'm on Rumble, Radical Thoughts 791. And that's about it. Later.